Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek, and y'all better be grateful that I'm doing this shit. 916-633-1537. I'm fucking serious. <laughs> ratchet of Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook group now. Um, it's Ratchet Book Club. It's not rocket science. It's... The, sh- the group is called Ratchet Book Club. Now, I could have named the group Ratchet Book Club slash It's Not Rocket Science. That would have been dope, but a little bit too deep. Like, too much inside baseball. Which is weird, because I don't even know what inside baseball is, because I don't do baseball. I play it, but... <sighs> Any sport where you sit there for three hours and the score is one nothing after um, extra innings is not my type of sport. And two of the worst words in the world to me in all of sports are the words pitchers duel. I actually did a show about it on a single simulcast a long time ago. One day I might go back and listen to it. It's like a time capsule. It's like, what? At this point in time, 11 years ago. So, see what the fuck I thought. It was more than that. It had to have been. Because I was like 28 when I professed my hatred of baseball and meant it. Speaking of hatred, chapter two, please, God, let someone come for me. Now, we know that Breeze can't be dead from that earthquake that they totally, completely took from the newspapers to write into their story. We know that they, that she can't be dead because they had her at in the in the funeral in the preclude in in the. Um, in the, 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 yeah, the preclude. Isn't that what it's called? Fuck it. What's it called? You know, the opening. The prologue. Prologue. Fuck y'all. So, she was in a casket then. So, we know she doesn't get it in Haiti. So, they need to just stop fucking around and just send her back home to Miami. Apparently, Mati might be dead. And if that's so, so be it. I don't care. But still, she hasn't make it back home. And they haven't said anything about um, Zaire. Zaire. They haven't said anything about Zaire yet. Which makes me wonder what's going on with him and with Ace. And how's Carter going to get out of jail? We know all this stuff's going to happen. I'm still mad that somehow murder showed up. Chapter 2. Please, God, let someone come for me. Breeze. Every inch of Breeze's body ached unbearably. I swear to God. 
God if they make her paralyzed. <laughs> Every inch of Breeze's body ached unbearably as the weight of Matisse home rested on top of her. Help me, she screamed, her voice raspy and sore from strain. For two days, she had been trapped beneath the rubble. She was trapped next to Matisse's decaying body. That's how we got it. Okay. And the smell was slowly driving her insane. His dead eyes haunted her as they stared in her direction. She could still hear his voice in her head, terrorizing her, telling her that she would never escape. And she felt nothing but utter hopelessness because she knew that no one even knew where to begin looking for her. Breeze's body wanted to give out on her. Without food, she was weak, but she knew that she could not give in to death. She had to make it out of this alive. She had come too far to die now. Matisse could no longer hold her captive. All I have to do is hold on. Someone will come, she thought. They have to. Well, I'm glad she has a better mindset in real life than she did in, in, <laughs> in Mia Moore's dreams. Like, Mia Moore does not think very highly of Breeze is what I gathered from that. Um... She sucked on the wet dirt beneath her to provide herself with some type of water. It was all that her body was surviving on, but she knew that it wouldn't be enough for her to make it much longer. Being trapped beneath the steel and concrete was like being buried alive. Physically, she knew that she was injured, but she blocked out the pain as she tried to keep her mind strong. She knew that once her will disappeared, she would die, so she tried her best to remain calm. Her father always told her that panic sent logic right out of the window, and she would need to think clearly in order to survive. The excruciating heat made her feel as if she was roasting in a cement oven. The blocks resting on top of her baked beneath the sun all day, burning her so badly that it felt as if a hot iron were being placed to her skin. She was grateful when the sun began to set, but the night brought on a completely different set of problems for Breeze. The sounds of the jungle terrified her, as the wildlife was attracted to the scent of Matisse's corpse. She wished she could cover her ears, but her hands were smashed beneath the rock, and the only thing she could do was close her eyes. Zaire's face popped into her mind as she tuned out the sounds of the night. He had always been her voice of reason when she needed him, and as she visualized him in her mind, she realized that she couldn't quite remember all of the details of his face. Too much time had passed, and she no longer held his exact features to memory. It was then that she grew more determined than ever to make it home. Please, God, let somebody come for me, she prayed. She had very little faith that her prayers would be answered. Speaking to God had not saved her from Matisse's torture, so she was skeptical that he would spare her from this. She was tired of the hardship that had become her life and a part of her wished that she had been the one to die with the earthquake when it hit. It seemed that Mattia had been granted the easy way out, while she was left to suffer. She could feel herself slowly dying. With every minute that passed, her heartbeat slowed down. It was only a matter of time before it gave out. Bree suffered through the sounds of the night with her eyes closed, but sleep never came. Her nerves were too on edge for her to rest. The ground had not stopped shaking beneath her. Every few hours, another aftershock set off more destruction, shifting the house on top of her and causing even more pain. The threat of it falling in on her completely was a constant threat. Any second she could be crushed to death, 
and the impending circumstance caused her body to tremble. She began to talk to herself just to stay lucid, singing songs that she remembered to stop herself from giving in to the pain. Everything in her wanted to let the earth swallow her. Exhaustion and fatigue caused her eyelids to become heavy. Just as the daylight came creeping back across the horizon, she heard the sound of human voices. She strained to listen, thinking that her mind was playing an evil trick on her. Hello? Is anyone out there? She called out at the top of her lungs. When she didn't hear a response, her heart dropped in disappointment. But the footsteps around her grew increasingly more audible. Straining her ears, she finally confirmed the voices. She couldn't make out what they were saying, but it didn't matter. She could not let them pass her by. Help! Help me! She yelled desperately as she pushed against a rock, steel, and slate that imprisoned her. She screamed so loudly that her lungs hurt and she choked on the dust in the air. But she didn't stop until she got the attention of the men. After locating her voice underneath the ominous pile, they rushed to her aid. Get me out! Get me out! She cried frantically. Please hurry! She panicked as she felt the men lifting the concrete from her body. The closer they got to rescuing her, the more Breeze hyperventilated. Relief washed over her as she wept loudly. She had never been so glad to hear another human voice. The men worked diligently to dig Breeze out as they spoke in a native Haitian dialect that she couldn't understand. They had no machines or forklifts, only their bare hands and the strength that God had given them, but that didn't stop them from helping Breeze. Although a language barrier stopped them from communicating, they knew what the look in her eyes meant. They could see her pleading with them to get her out. The more weight that was lifted off Breeze, the more pain she felt. Her legs were completely useless. The blood flow had been cut off from them, and her light skin had turned a sickening blue. Once they could maneuver her out, one of the men picked her up, while the others began to dig out Mati. No! she yelled. The men looked at her in confusion, but none of them stopped digging. They refused to leave a man behind. When they finally removed Mati from the rubble, they realized that he was already dead. They debated whether they should carry his body down the mountain, but there was no point in wasting their energy on him. Even if they did take his body to the town, it would just lie out in the streets. No one who died in this tragedy would receive a proper burial, so they figured it best to just let him be. Breeze let her head rest against the chest of one of the rescuers as they began their descent down the mountain. Not once did she look back. She was eager for help and expected to be rescued as soon as they finished their descent down the mountain. She was unprepared for the chaos that awaited her in the city of Port-au-Prince. Everything had been destroyed, and there were too many people to help and not enough relief to make a difference. The men dropped Breeze off at a safety site that had been set up and went on their way. It was a free-for-all. Everyone was out for self, and the lack of organization gave her no one to turn to. She was left to fend for herself. The safety site looked more like a demolition site to Breeze. Makeshift tents had been made out of sheets and spare fabric to cover some of the injured people being treated by the doctors. The chaos was overwhelming as Breeze surveyed the aftermath of the quake. Trapped atop the mountain with Mati, she had no idea how big the earthquake really was. The magnitude of its destruction was unimaginable. 
Everyone was displaced. Everyone was injured. Everyone needed help. This natural disaster had destroyed an entire nation of people. So much so that even the organizations that had come to help did not know where to start. Breeze had been one of the lucky ones. She had made it out of the rubble. She was cut badly, bruised beyond belief, and starving for nutrition. But she was alive. And as she looked around sadly at all of the dead bodies, she realized how grateful she was. When the circulation finally came back to her legs, she walked aimlessly, trying not to stare at the lost children who walked the streets, many in search of parents they would never find. Their cries made her cringe because she knew exactly how it felt to be ripped from those you love. American camera crews recorded the horrendous tragedy, and even CNN's Anderson Cooper reported live in an attempt to display what was happening to the world. Haiti had been impoverished for years, but the earthquake had put the international spotlight on the black nation. Breeze was dumbfounded because although America was reporting on the situation, she never saw one reporter put down their microphone to assist or offer help. When a little red light to their camera came on and the crew was filming, they were engaged and sympathetic. But when it came down to actually contributing to humanity, they all recoiled selfishly. As soon as the camera stopped rolling, their concern for the earthquake victims dwindled, proving to Breeze that it was all for show. There were people dying around them, and all they cared about was a story. She was in desperate need of medical attention, sustaining not only injuries from the quake, but also injuries from being raped by Matee. She was physically, psychologically, and emotionally troubled, but as she looked around her, she realized that that was not only her story, but the story of so many others as well. There was no food, no water, no relief whatsoever, and Haitian citizens were beginning to get restless. Breeze watched as gangs of individuals looted whatever places were still standing and attempts to find supplies and food. The scarcity of resources was making everyone desperate, and as Breeze noticed a fruit truck being looted, she could not stop herself from following suit. The hunger pain shooting through her stomach justified her actions as she ran over to the truck and pushed her way to the front to grab her share. After filling her hands with four large oranges, she attempted to run, but was stopped by a woman who was fighting to snatch the fruit from Breeze. No, Breeze protested as she pushed the woman off her violently. She ran away from the scene and found an empty cot near the safety site. She collapsed as she tore open the fruit and sucked the juices from the inside. She resembled an animal as she ate ravenously, keeping her eyes up as she guarded the only meal she had received in days. Her heart tore in half when she saw a little girl eyeing her desperately. Breeze knew that her soul had disappeared when she shouted, What the hell are you looking at? I don't have anything for you. It was then that she realized that Matia really turned her soul black. Before landing in his company, she had been selfless and giving. Even amongst the worst of predicaments, Breeze had always maintained a good heart. Guilt plagued her as she looked down at the three other pieces of fruit she had stolen. Here, she said to the small child as she held out an orange for the girl. The little girl's eyes lit up as she thankfully took the fruit. They sat eating the meager meal together as if it would be their last. Breeze did not know what her next move would be. Waiting would be like torture. But she had no other choice. She didn't know if she was waiting to live or waiting to die. She only hoped the resolution would eventually come.
Chapter 3. The Connect ain't fucking with us because we got that federal eye in the sky on us. Zaire. Mecca sat back in the large meeting room of the Diamond Family Mansion. Pretty soon, it'll belong to someone else. Mecca had put the beautiful property up for sale. It was too hot, and now it was time to rebuild the Diamond Legacy somewhere else. Everything had been cleared out except this one room. He closed his eyes as his mind drifted back to the days when his father used to hold court for his head lieutenants in that very space. It seemed that his father had run things so smoothly. The cartel of today was a far cry from the organized crime family that his father had started. Now everything around them was chaos. Jesus Christ, and with young Carter in jail, Mecca was unsure if he could fill the shoes of the leader and effectively run the cartel. It was no longer a family operation. Only one diamond was left standing, and although Carter was his half-brother, it wasn't the same. They had suffered too many casualties, and loyalty was a rarity nowadays. Their father had ruled with love, whereas Carter, Mecca, and Zaire were holding down their spot in the streets with fear. With the spotlight of the feds shining on them, no one wanted to deal too closely with the cartel. They spelled too incorrectly. We're back. The streets were talking, and word was out that Carter might just lose his case. Niggas from the bottom to the top were shook, including their coke supplier. The sound of the foyer door opening snapped him out of his reverie, and he stood to welcome Zaire. What's good, fam? Zaire greeted as he embraced Mecca briefly. You tell me. How's that paper looking? Mecca asked. As the cartel's most trusted lieutenant, Zaire's ear was glued to the street. There was nothing that got by him. Mecca had been forced to lay low because of his beef with Emilio Estes. So it was up to Zaire to ensure that their presence remained known in the streets. He has to lay low, but he could still make it out there to chop off Miamor's hand and send it in the mail. To a house that he shouldn't know jack shit about. Shit is slow. Carter's case got everybody running scared. The connect ain't fucking with us because we got that federal eye in the sky on us. Not mean? What about the niggas who owe us money? Mecca asked irritably. It seemed as if everything they had built was now on the downfall. Oh, I got that cake. Believe that. Ain't nobody skipping out on the bill, but nobody's re-upping. It's like niggas is cutting ties. No one wants to be associated with a sinking ship. Niggas only loyal when the getting is good. I mean, we still got a few men who stand tall, but I ain't gonna lie. Shit ain't sweet, Zaire informed. With everything seized, that shoebox money running real low. Carter's lawyer expecting another payment today, and even my stash is hurting. Mecca knew that things would get tight for everybody with Carter locked up. The government had frozen all their legitimate accounts. Even diamond realty profits couldn't be touched until a resolution to Carter's case was reached. Everyone, including Mecca, was living temporarily off of whatever money they had flown under the radar. But random money that had been stashed in safes weren't enough for men who spent it as if it grew on trees. You know what, Mecca? If you hadn't killed your brother, he would have been the yeah he would have been the, he would have been the legitimate face of the company, like Polo's punk ass. Because I still think he had something to do with everything. But Polo and Carter had said to you in the beginning. If you hadn't killed him, but you did. So now you're in this place. 
goofus. Between the two of them, they had a little over a million dollars. But with Carter's case eating into their finances and a paranoid cocaine connection, that large sum of petty cash was dwindling by the day. What time do you have to meet the lawyers, Mecca asked. In about an hour. After that, I plan on checking in with Carter. I need him to know what's going on, and he's been asking me to check for his chick, Mia Moore. Tell him to stop looking, Mecca stated coldly. What? Zaire questioned. You know he ain't gonna stop looking for her. That's his bitch. He said it like that too, just, that's his bitch. Mecca removed the scowl from his face and replied, I heard she left town, so tell him to stop worrying about a bitch. We gotta keep his mind right so we can beat this case. Overwhelmed and worried about the state of his family's empire, Mecca sighed. I'll drop that payment off to the lawyer. You holler at Carter. Let him know what's been going on. See what he wants us to do to stay afloat. As Mecca watches Zaire leave, he collapsed back into his father's chair. The throne that he had sat on for many years seemed too big for Mecca. The responsibilities ahead in the cartel too daunting for a hothead like Mecca. Mecca was built to be in the game. He was a goon, a killer, and his natural-born hustle was innate. But being the leader had never been his forte. That role had better suited his twin brother, Money. The thought of Monroe brought tears to his eyes. He had hardened himself to insanity after he murdered his brother. But the extreme guilt that still plagued him over his actions always broke him down. On the rare moments when he was alone and had time to reflect, he remembered that fateful night. And he mourned the loss of his other half. Monroe was his only weakness. And his murder was a secret that Mecca would take to his grave. Zaire sat across from Carter, six inches of glass separating them from one another, and Zaire felt a sense of despair on behalf of his mentor. Carter was his brother, and in a way, the only father figure that Zaire had ever had. It pained Zaire to see him confined, his usual designer threads replaced by an orange jumpsuit. Carter had taught Zaire everything he knew about the game. Carter had groomed him for this exact moment because he understood that the game didn't last forever. And once he met his downfall, he was confident that Zaire would be able to take his place. How you holding up? Zaire asked as he gripped the telephone, obviously uncomfortable within the confines of the federal penitentiary. There was something about being behind those walls that terrified Zaire, despite the fact that his own freedom wasn't at risk. Wipe that sad look off your face, little nigga. You look like you standing over my casket or something. Carter joked charismatically while smirking. Zaire loosened up a little and chuckled a bit before replying. Just don't feel right, know what I mean? Looking at you through this glass. We working on that as we speak. Got your legal peoples working around the clock on your case. Carter respected Zaire for his loyalty and support. Carter wasn't an optimist, however. He was a realist and he wanted to prepare his little nigger for his potential conviction. Zai. Carter cleared his throat and rubbed his groin goatee as he stared intently at his protege. You know there's a possibility that this all could end badly for me. Zaire shook his head in denial and replied, Nah, fam. Shit's gonna work itself out. Before you know it, you'll be home. Carter nodded his head and then pressed the issue further. He just wanted to put it out there. 
He knew Zaire like the pack of his hand. He had planted the seed in Zaire's head, and he knew that Zaire would make the necessary plants just in case. Why hasn't Mia Moore been to see me? I can't reach her by phone. Have you heard from her? Carter inquired. Zaire shook his head. He hated to be the one to tell him the news, but thought he deserved to know. Mecca heard she skipped town right after your arrest, Zaire stated. Carter frowned and replied, Skip town? The news was disturbing to hear. Nothing about it resonated as true in his heart. His case had nothing to do with her, and he knew that the only time a bitch was leaving town was if she was running away with a bag full of money. Mia Moore never had access to his paper, and he had never involved her in his illegal dealings, so she had no reason to run. It didn't make sense to him, but he knew that he was in no position to worry about her whereabouts. If and when he got out of prison, he would handle the situation. Until then, he stored the information in his mental Rolodex. After Zaire informed him of the state of the cartel, their visit was cut short. He had a lot to think about. He had played the game for many years, and now it seemed that it had finally caught up to him. His judgment day had arrived. Mecca emerged from the family mansion cautiously as he looked around himself in paranoia. He knew that his grandfather, Emilio Estes, would not stop until his head was on a platter, and that his power was far-reaching. Mecca had no idea who Estes was ever going to send at him, so he watched his back wherever he went. He slid into his Lamborghini and left rubber in his path as he sped off towards the lawyer's office. Alton Beckham was a defense attorney who had been a retainer from the very beginning. A friend to his father, Mecca knew that Beckham was young Carter's best chance of getting off. His unscrupulous morals and greed for money were the main reason why he was so beneficial to his clients. Mecca walked into his office, where Beckham's receptionist greeted him. She stood to greet Mecca. Hello, Mr. Diamond. If you'll have a seat, Mr. Beckham has another client in his office, but... Before she could even finish her sentence, Mecca bypassed the secretary as if she were invisible and walked directly into Beckham's office. I'm sorry, Mr. Beckham. The secretary stated as she rushed inside behind Mecca. I told him he had to wait. I don't wait, Mecca stated simply as he took a seat next to the client that was already sitting, with no regard for the meeting that he was interrupting. Beckham stood up from behind his desk. It's okay, Tracy. Mr. Diamond is always welcome. He then turned to his client and extended his hand. I apologize, but I'm going to have to cut our meeting short. You can reschedule out front. Knowing exactly who Mecca Diamond was, the other client didn't protest before walking out of the room. Once the office was cleared, Beckham got down to business. He loosened his tie and sat back in his plush leather chair as he reached underneath his desk, pulling out a bottle of cognac. He poured two glasses and held one out to Mecca. Mecca smirked at the Jewish lawyer before him. Every time I accepted a drink from you, bad news follows. Mecca was only half-joking. He knew that Beckham was a beast in the courtroom, but he was a snake outside of it. He offered his expertise, but it came at a hefty price. This all reeks of racism. <laughs> I mean, because he's Jewish. Carter's case requires more time than I previously anticipated. The federal prosecutor really has a hard-on for your brother. He's doing everything he can in order to send Carter away. They just don't want a conviction, 
They want a life sentence, and they want to make an example out of the cartel. In order for me to prepare the best defense, I'm going to have to go up on my price. Don't beat around the bush, Beckham. The bottom line is money. How much do you want? Mecca asked. I brought a payment here for you today. Mecca placed a money-filled manila envelope in the front of the lawyer. $50,000. Trusting his long-working relationship with the Diamond family, Beckham didn't feel the need to count it. He put it in his desk drawer and replied, That's a start. What price will finish it? Mecca questioned. Double, Beckham responded. Mecca didn't have a problem paying the fee. It was worth Carter's freedom. But he wanted to make it clear that if he was going to spare no expense, then Carter's freedom better be guaranteed. You know, with that type of paper, you'll have new responsibilities. I'll personally expect more from you. You accepting that kind of money tells me my brother will walk. Things can turn out real bad for you if you don't live up to these expectations. You understand? Mecca asked boldly. Beckham was well aware of who he was dealing with, and he knew that by charging the cartel double for their leader's defense, he was playing with his own life. If he lost, the consequences would be devastating for him, but greed outweighed his reason. I understand, he replied as he extended his hand. Once Mecca accepted it, the new deal was done. Getting Carter out of prison would not be cheap, but it was worth it. Because only Carter had the foresight it took to get the cartel out of its slump. He could reestablish their cocaine connection. Once Carter was out, everyone would eat again, and the balance of power would be restored. Mecca emerged from the attorney's office and removed his car keys from his back pocket. When he was halfway across the street, he hit the remote starter on his keychain. Boom! Glass and metal flew everywhere as Mecca's car exploded, knocking him from his feet and sending him flying backwards onto the pavement. Oh, shit, he yelled out in panicked alarm as he scrambled to his feet and backpedaled away from the blaze. He looked around in bewilderment as flames engulfed his five-figure car and a crowd began to draw around him. Fuck, he yelled as he put his hands on the side of his head. He knew that only one person would have the balls to come after him, Emilio Estes. And as he looked on in pure rage, he knew that this was far from being over. His grandfather would not stop until he put Mecca in the grave, right next to his twin brother. Five figure. Ones, tens, hundreds, thousands, ten thousands? Really? I just figured it was six figures. That's all. Lena sat in the opulence of the Oceanside Via that was now her home. She could not believe that her life had come to this point. She had played a dangerous game by falling in love with two brothers, and the end result had proven deadly. She could still feel the ache where Mecca's bullet had penetrated her. But it didn't hurt nearly as much as the fact that she had sparked a beef between two brothers. She had created a divide between two men who should have been inseparable, impenetrable, invincible. But because of her, everything had been torn apart. She smiled as she looked at her child, Monroe's only son, as he sat playing quietly on the floor beneath her feet. The only living seed of the late Monroe Diamond sat so innocently, so unaware of his status. He was the heir to so much power and money. Her son was a diamond, and it was that fact that kept her safe. 
It kept her alive. It had made her untouchable. She had been whisked away from the hospital to this world of luxury. She had been there for over a year, and now she sat eating nervously, silently, across from Emilio Estes, the man who had made it all possible. Her child had given her access to the throne, a throne so much bigger than she had ever been appointed. The Dominican-born Estes was more powerful than anyone she had ever met, including the Diamond Brothers. He was their grandfather, and now he was her provider. As she picked at the chef-prepared meal before her, she kept her eyes on her plate. She could feel the power emanating from all the way across the table. He intimidated her. There was a mysterious nature to him. He was a man of few words. And during the time that they had been together, he asked more questions than he ever answered. He observed her, and although she felt sheltered around him, she still feared him. What does he want from me? Why am I really here? She asked herself. He insisted that she stay with him. But in spite of the time that she had been a guest in his house, she still didn't know him. Estes spared her nothing and lavishly showered her with gifts. She was his unspoken possession, one that was well kept and polished. He had expressed his interest in her by giving her material things and security. He ensured that her every need was attended to. But for Lena, love was elusive. She knew that she could never give Estes what he sought. He kept her around as a lady on his arm, but the only reason she allowed him to was because she had no other choice. How could she turn down the man that had taken her in after she had been shot? He had nursed her back to health and saw her through her entire pregnancy. He had treated her well, and because of this, she felt indebted to him. What is it that you want from me? She asked as she finally mustered the courage to look up at him from across the long dining room table. He was reading the daily newspaper while sipping coffee, and he took his time before he acknowledged her question. Her stomach was in knots as she watched him. He always moved in his own time, and his silence caused her heart to gallop in anxiety. I just want you to care for my great-grandson. That is all I require of you, he replied without looking up from his newspaper. That's my responsibility as a mother. I understand that you want your great-grandson to be here with you, but why am I here? she asked. I hoped that you would allow me to share in his life with you. I told you that my lineage would always be taken care of. You are the mother of my grandson's firstborn. Monroe would have taken very good care of you if he could have. In his absence, I plan to ensure that you want for nothing, that my great-grandson wants for nothing. I have become very fond of you since you've been here. I know that you're reluctant to return my affections, but you're young, and your heart is still broken from losing Monroe. In time, I hope that your heart will warm to me. Lena nodded, but couldn't find the words to respond. Her emotions were so mixed when it came to her situation. She was more appreciative than anything. He was so kind and so generous but she could not help but to walk around on eggshells. To be in the presence of a man so great would take some getting used to, but Estes had already established that he wanted her around, and she was silently relieved to have his support. In honesty, she was still afraid of Mecca. She knew that he deeply cared for her, and her betrayal had pushed him over the edge. He didn't know that she had survived, 
and she was afraid that if he ever found out, he would finish what he started. By choosing to be with Estes, she knew the Mecca couldn't touch her, and that alone was reason enough for her to stay, despite the fact that her heart was not fully invested. Chapter 4 It doesn't feel as good as the first time. Breeze, golly, please don't tell me they get her addicted to drugs. Okay, I'm going to go. The chaos around her was overwhelming as the devastation of the earthquake displayed itself all around her. Escaping Matisse's imprisonment should have brought some type of relief, but being free was overshadowed by the catastrophe that had occurred. Her bruised and cut up body was nothing compared to the dead bodies that littered the streets, decomposing before her terrified eyes. The overwhelming heat mixed with the smell of death in the air caused her insides to erupt. She had thrown up so many times that she had lost count, and with no clean drinking water in sight, she had nothing to replace the energy that was leaving her body. She could barely breathe because the stench was so horrifying. She had never yearned for home more than she did at that moment. Her heart raced every second because she did not know what to expect next. The unstable ground beneath her threatened to crack every time the earth shook. How would she come to be so far away from the safety of the Diamond Mansion? Her life had been a living hell, and Mother Earth was taking no prisoners as it destroyed everything in her path. The people of Haiti had just had everything stripped from them, and Breeze was amongst them. The little bit of hope she had left had been buried underneath the rubble. She was going to die in Haiti. What Mati did not finish, Mother Earth surely would. As Breeze lay on the blood-stained cot out in the open sun, it felt as if she were baking alive. Her light skin had burnt badly, causing her open wounds to crust over with infection. It was so hot that the vision before her eyes were hazy, as if steam was rising from the cracks in the ground. Circumstances had never been so dire. Breeze's survival was out of her hands, and as the bodies continued to drop like flies around her, she silently feared that she would be next. Breeze could barely lift her head as she watched those around her. She noticed a white woman going around with water-filled canteens. Too weak to even call out, she silently prayed for the woman to come her way. She noticed how the woman picked some of the younger ladies to follow her as she made her way through a thick crowd. It was as if the woman was looking for someone in particular. When the woman finally crossed Breeze's path, she reached out her arm and grabbed the woman's leg in desperation. The woman turned to Breeze and stared down at her in sympathy. Please, I need water, Breeze whispered, her eyes pleading. Of course, the woman replied as she knelt beside Breeze. She motioned for the young women who followed her to halt, and then she lifted the canteen of Breeze's lips. Breeze greedily gulped the water, the coolness of the liquid soothing her dry insides. She closed her eyes. Nothing had ever been so satisfying. The woman could not see Breeze's face through all the dirt and ash that covered it. She smiled slightly as she wiped the dirt from Breeze's ashen features, trying to show her a friendly face amongst the debris and turmoil. I'm Miss Beth, the woman stated. What's your name, she asked. Breeze, she responded as she continued to drink the water, hydrating her soul as much as her body. Breeze, where's your family? Miss Beth asked. The thought of her loved ones brought tears of pain to her eyes. She hadn't seen them in so long, 
Her heart broke to pieces as she began to sob. I don't know. I'm not even supposed to be here, she cried. You could have said, you know what? I was kidnapped and my family's in Florida. Can I use your phone? But instead, when given her opportunity, y'all decide to make her just get all emotional and be unable to speak. Come on, sweetheart. I can take you somewhere safe, Miss Beth stated as she helped breathe to her feet. Feeling a sense of trust for the first time since she had been taken away from her family, Bree stood on her shaky limbs and joined the small group of young women as they walked behind Miss Beth. Where is she taking us? Breeze asked one of the girls who walked beside her. She came through here yesterday and helped a lot of people. She gave them water and food, and then she took them somewhere safe. I think she works for a charity in the States. I hope that she's taking us there. I've always wanted to go there, the young Haitian girl said whimsically. I've noticed that they've taken out all the does and d's and... I don't mean to say duh, but she took out all of the D and me, and so Aries no longer talks with an accent either. I've noticed that. Also, this one was probably a sex uh, trafficker. It's going to be bad. She's going to make Breeze get high or something. She's taking us to the United States. They put United States. Unites States? U-N-I-T-E-S States? She's taking us to the United States, Breeze repeated. I know the S and the D are side by side, I understand, but still. Her heart fluttered as visions of home flooded her mind. The girl nodded her head, and it was all the confirmation that Breeze needed to continue to follow Miss Beth, as if she were the shepherd leading her sheep. Breeze looked back at what was left of the city of Port-au-Prince, and she was just grateful that an opportunity to get out had arisen. She had thought she would forever be lost in a buried city. But Miss Beth had just come to her rescue. No, no, she hadn't. I'm I'm certain that she's a a sex trafficker. She's a child trafficker. And that's the reason why she was clearing off her face of dirt. So then she could look to see how cute she was. They walked for miles before Breeze finally saw the boat. It looked like a large military ship. The massive piece of steel that sat in the water sent shivers down her spine. And as Breeze looked on at the group of girls she stood amongst... She recognized the same glimmer of hope in everyone's eyes. All they wanted to do was get to a better place, to feel safe. Even though the boat was daunting, it was their only way out, and none of them were going to deny it. Breeze's eyes fell upon the side of the medium-sized vessel. The word Murderville had been graffiti painted on the ship's starboard side. Yeah. You know what, I'm going to stay here. Can I use your phone real fast? I'm just going to, I just remember my family actually lives up the street. Yeah, around the corner, right there, right there, right there, right, right. You missed it. I'm going to walk backwards. Breeze wanted to call her family so badly to let them know that she was alive and that she was safe. Not for long, you trust some white woman named Miss Beth onto a boat called Murderville. They were the first people she wanted to see when she finally made it to the States. There were about 50 other girls all around her who were just as eager as Breeze, but all of their fear originated from the quake. Breeze's torture had included so much more. The rape, the kidnapping, the degradation from Mati was a precursor to this natural disaster. And if she didn't speak to her family soon, she was sure that her sanity would crack. Overwhelmed and anxious, she pushed through the crowd to get to Miss Beth. Miss Beth? Breeze called out to get her attention amongst the many young women. As Miss Beth tried to organize a crowd, Breeze followed behind her. 
Miss Beth, do you have a cell phone I can use? I haven't talked to my family in so long. I just want to let them know that I'm coming home. They don't even know that I'm alive. Miss Beth was too busy to stop her stride, but Breeze followed behind her. She watched everyone begin to form a line. I'm sorry, Breeze. I don't have a phone that's available for you right now. There's no service on this side of the island. As soon as we reach the States, I'll get you to a phone so you can call your family, Miss Beth stated. She could see the disappointment in Breeze's eyes, so she put one hand on her shoulder and added, Don't worry. Everything will be fine now. You'll be back with them before you know it. Breeze nodded. Now go ahead and get in line so you can get your vaccination. We can't have you bringing any diseases back to the U.S. with you, Miss Beth said reassuringly. Yep, the vaccination's actually a drug. It's heroin or it's crack or something like that, and it's going to get her addicted. Okay. Breeze got in the line, and when it was her turn to receive the medicine, Miss Beth tied a thick rubber band around her arm, causing a huge vein to emerge. Miss Beth smiled at Breeze and said, I promise all of your pain will go away, Breeze. I hope so, Breeze answered back through tear-filled eyes. Miss Beth stuck the needle in Breeze's arm and injected it slowly. As the drug entered her system, a warm, euphoric feeling traveled up her arm and spread throughout her entire body. You'll be tired for a while, but this will keep you from getting sick. A disaster this big brings about a lot of infection, Miss Beth stated. There'll be a cop for you to rest on once you're on board. Breeze nodded but really didn't pay attention to anything that Miss Beth said. The euphoric feeling that took over her body made all of her worries, all of her pains, and all of her horrible memories of Matisse's abuse go away instantly. Her eyelids felt so heavy that she could barely keep them from closing, and her mouth fell open slightly in satisfaction. Every spot on her body tingled. The fuck? Seriously, people? And her clitoris hardened as the drug surged through her veins. Breeze felt so good that she came to an orgasm where she stood, causing the place between her legs to become wet with her own juices. She obediently fell in line as she followed the rest of the girls onto the boat. I'm going to get through this chapter. I'm going to get through. Breeze awoke to the prick of another needle being put in her arm. This time, it wasn't by Miss Beth, but by one of the men she had seen when she had boarded the boat back in Haiti. As she looked around, she noticed that the other girls were being injected as well. She wanted to ask what they were giving her, but as quickly as the thought of protest popped into her mind, the drug took its effect and erased any objection that she had. A stupid grin spread across her face as her neck muscles weakened slightly, causing her head to dip onto her chest. Nothing had ever felt better, and she welcomed the sensations that traveled through her. She had no idea that Miss Beth and her team were forcing heroin into her system. All she knew was that the medicine made her feel good. It made everything feel like bliss and numbed her emotions to the point where she had forgot about all that had happened. She was almost drunk with ecstasy as her body began to warm. It didn't feel as good as the first dose, and as the man stood to move to the next girl, Breeze grabbed his arm. Can you give me a little more? It doesn't feel as good as the first time, she whispered. The man chuckled and shook his head. It never does, sweetheart, he replied before moving on to his next victim. Miss Beth was in the business of human trafficking, 
and went from impoverished island to impoverished island in the Caribbean to lure young women and children with the hopes of a better life. The children she abducted were usually trafficked into modern-day slavery. But the young women were like budding flowers and were picked for the sex trade. When she stumbled across Breeze, she knew that she had hit the jackpot. Her American clients would go crazy over the young beauty, and she would make a big profit off her because of her fair skin tone. The heroin made it easier to take advantage of her victims. The drug kept them under control and dependent. Breeze had just been introduced to the world of addiction, and she would always chase the potency of that first high she had been given. Her ignorance would only last for so long, and by the time she realized she was hooked, it would be too late for her to stop. Even though she was on her way back to the United States, she was now more far away from home than she had ever been. Now, what? Now she was lost in a boy that was so strong that once he got a hold of you, he rarely ever let go. What the fuck does that mean? Also, fuck you. Fuck you, writers. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Like, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck. Like, seriously. The fuck? Do y'all just hate women? Do you? Like, I can understand women hating women. I know that that happens, so I know that I can ask this question. Do y'all just fucking hate women? Is that why you will not give one woman in this entire book a moment of peace? What the fuck? Do y'all write this shit down and then look back at it and say, that's the move right there. That's the that's the lick. Fuck. After two days of traveling underneath the deck of the ship, Breeze was relieved when the boat finally docked. Breeze rushed up the stairs. The door leading to the main deck was always locked. The girls traveling below was not allowed on the main deck, and as they traveled, they had confined below. What? As they traveled, they had confined below. What the fuck does that mean? Anxiously awaiting their arrival. For many of them, it was the start of a new life. For Breeze, it would be a return to her old one. Breeze beat the door with her fist as she anticipated the reunion she would have with her family. The door opened, and Breeze rushed out, only to be stopped by one of Miss Beth's workers. What are you doing? Let me go. I just want to see where we are, Breeze shouted as she struggled against the man. It wasn't until she felt the hard sting of his hands that her instincts told her something was horribly wrong. Now that her high had worn off, she was able to process the situation in a new light. She didn't know what was going on, but now that they were back in the U.S., she wanted off that boat. Where's Miss Beth? I need to speak to her, she yelled persistently as she was pushed back beneath the deck. She said I could make a call. At that moment, the metal door opened and Miss Beth walked down with five men following behind her. Miss Beth? Bree shouted as she pushed past the man apprehending her. Where are we? I felt the boat dock and you said I can call my family, she reminded desperately. But as Breeze spoke, she noticed that the disposition of the friendly woman she had met in Haiti had changed. Her eyes were cold and revealed sinister intentions as she stared unflinchingly back at Breeze. Her father always told her she could see the character of a person by looking in their eye. And as Breeze studied Miss Beth, she finally saw the devil that dwelled inside her.
her brow furrowed in confusion. You said you would help me get home. Bree shouted as she watched Miss Beth's staff filter through the room and begin to blast heroin into the other girl's arms. Breeze backed away from Miss Beth as she looked down at her own arms. Non-stop needles had been put in her veins for the past 48 hours, and foolishly, Breeze had allowed them to do it. What have you been giving me? She screamed hysterically. Why are you doing this? Breeze demanded. Restrain her, Miss Beth said calmly to one of her workers. You bitch! Breeze yelled as she charged Miss Beth. She smacked fire from Miss Beth before she was finally subdued, and she screamed like a mad woman as she watched the woman who she thought would be her savior approaching her with a needle. No, please, I just want to go home. You have no idea what I've been through. Miss Beth ignored the pleas and jammed the needle painfully deep into Breeze's vein. Ah! Breeze cried out as blood trickled from her arm. She could feel the tension leave her body as a tear of defeat slipped from her eyes. What are you doing to me? What are you even giving me? Breeze whispered as the orgasmic high once again took over her. Miss Beth looked cruelly back at her and smirked before replying, Heroin. By the time I'm done with you, you'll be nothing but a junkie whore. Breeze's soul cried out silently as she felt herself going into a nod. The last thing she heard was Miss Beth's voice. Shoot her up twice. She's going to be a handful. The faster we get her hooked, the better. She'll learn to go with the flow one way or the other. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. They bring Mia Moore back. Just to kill her immediately. They rescue. They don't even rescue Breeze. They don't. They have a fucking house fall on her. Leave her abandoned in the house for two days. Scared out of her mind about the wildlife that's around her. And smelling the stench of death coming off Mati. Who she doesn't even get the pleasure of killing. Then she's finally rescued and taken down and, 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 and put onto a cot and has the still food to survive. And she's just lived through the most horrendous uh, earthquake up to that point in, in the island's history. And she finally sees somebody who she thinks can help her. And it turns out that that person's a sex trafficker. And y'all saw that I called it immediately, right? Because these authors clearly do not like this girl. Like with um, the coldest winter ever, Sister Soldier didn't like winter, but she didn't even think about doing this kind of shit to winter because she was trying to make winter into a parody of what she thought of women who acted like winter. This book is literally balling out of control and it's 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 answering to nobody but themselves. There's two people writing this book uh, that talk to one another about what their plans are for this book. And all they're planning is pain and misery for the women in this book. And if, if, if Mia Moore is actually dead now, then there's no women left in the main story. Then Breeze. There's no one left in the Diamond Family than Breeze. And so Breeze is just... I don't know. Drugs ain't nothing to joke with. Drugs ain't nothing to play with. 
and y'all are putting this you're you're doing the most so again from the bottom of my heart fuck y'all fuck you fuck you fuck you fuck you 916-633-1537 ratchet and ratchet at gmail.com ratchet book club on twitter ratchet book club on facebook um you can leave a review on Podchaser. The cool thing about leaving a review on Podchaser is that you can review the show as a whole. You could also review episodes of the show, which is nice. You can also review uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a review on Stitcher, and you can leave a review uh, other places too. I'm sorry, I can't even think right now. I'm so mad. Uh, you can donate to the show at Patreon.com/slash Single Simulcast. Uh, you can help us buy more books at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. Um, if you're listening on Good Pods, you can tip the show uh, by just going to the tip jar. Every dollar helps. It all goes towards books, buying books. I never thought that I would feel this way about this book. I mean, I knew I feel this way about this book, but when I started this series... From there to here, so quickly, I, I just, if you had told me that, I would have never read this series. I wouldn't have. Ever. This shit is sickening. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,